homeless. We are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. Thich Nhat Hanh. One of the unique and troubling challenges of being human is our separation from nature. As I noted earlier, we're lonely thinking animals in the world, though we're not fully of it because we hold ourselves apart from it. We hold this separation in our heads and our hearts and our souls and our bodies, and its effect is to render us homeless in a most profound way. Many of us have been physically uprooted too. For millennia, we fled our families and homelands due to war, slavery, persecution, migration, natural disasters, divorce, and the search for a better life. These experiences are rooted somewhere in our collective memory, and recorded examples go back as far as the Old Testament of the Bible. By contrast, people with a long intergenerational history of living securely with the land feel deeply at home. Crucially, they know where the bones of their ancestors lie, and they have a profound sense of belonging to their forebears, to the plants, to the animals and to the skies, the land and the waterways. Until their culture was disrupted 250 years ago, scholars say indigenous Australians lived this way for as long as 60,000 years. Their dreaming mythology infused everything with sacred meaning. When life is lived mythologically, there's no separation between what we might see as mundane, chores, study, work, commuting, food preparation, and what we might call sacred, prayer, sacrifice and worship. For indigenous people, mythology mirrors their deep sense of belonging to the environment. Everything is sacred, especially hunting, gathering, storytelling, celebration, and the initiations that inform their spiritual evolution from birth to death. Among the many tragedies perpetrated by disrupting indigenous cultures, perhaps the greatest is stealing and removing people from their homelands through the practice of slavery. Of course, slavery inflicts many more wrongs. It denies people their liberty and their customs, their gods and their language. But its chief injury is to violate their deepest sense of belonging by stealing their deep sense of spiritual and cultural belonging. Similar wounding has befallen people who have been forcibly removed from their land or who have fled in fear of persecution and death. Some immigrants and their descendants feel a similar deprivation even though they and their forebears weren't stolen or fleeing from calamity. In the United States, the southern and the westward expansion of the frontier that began with the British colonial settlements of the early 17th century created opportunities for new immigrants and pioneering settlers to stake their claim for a new and a better life. But heading west didn't mean they had any idea of how to be at home in their new environment. With their ancestors behind them in Europe or in the newer colonial settlements to the east, these pioneering immigrants quickly became cultural orphans. They had no lineage, no elders, and no mythology to ground them in the new land. What's more, 
their loss was bought at the expense of Indigenous people. Encouraged by a belief in so-called manifest destiny and the passing of laws such as the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and the Indian Appropriations Act of 1851, the US Congress extinguished native title to land and enabled the forcible removal of Native Americans from their ancestral homelands to accommodate European and American expansion west of the Mississippi River. Indigenous people who agreed to be assimilated into the new white culture were allowed to stay on their lands rather than be moved to reservations. But assimilation meant abandoning long-held stories and practices that ruptured their cultural identity. Anthropologists who study the impacts of human dislocation and ethnic cleansing say it takes just two generations to break the bonds that bind people to their ancestry and their sense of being at home. The grandchildren, with no lived or recounted memory of any ancestral home, know nothing of home, nor do they know that about themselves, wrote Stephen Jenkinson. They don't know what the elders are talking about, if they are still talking about what was left behind, and they don't often know much of the language the elders are speaking when they do. What the grandchildren know is flight. But many of us with the good fortune to have a house, a passport and citizenship of a nation state are still cultural orphans with nothing and nobody to fill the deep longing for home. Home isn't necessarily a place or a psychological state of being, although the real estate and home decorating industries have convinced many of us that feeling homely signals the bliss of a spiritual home. Nomadic people have no settled home. They move from place to place as a way of obtaining their food, finding pastures for livestock and making a living. Their shelters are temporary and their movement is guided by the seasons and the availability of edible plants and game and water. Today, some 30 to 40 million people are classed as nomads, drawing on traditions dating back as far as 8,500 BC. With no fixed address, nomadic people bear their children and bury their dead by the trail side. No headstones or cemeteries mark the whereabouts of their fallen ancestors. So how is it possible to be at home with no fixed address? One clue lies in the relationship that nomads and some surviving indigenous people share with their ancestors. In these cultures, the dead feed the living. When Grandpa dies, the tribe honours the old man with days of grieving, stories and songs and feasting. The old man is present at his wake, propped in a makeshift chair or a throne to hear the stories of his life, his achievements and failures and more besides. Everyone feasts on the marrow of his life and when the ceremonies are done, they put him in the ground and they move on. But he's not gone or forsaken. Soon after he's in the ground, his body starts decomposing through the action of microbes in his body and the bacteria and fungi and worms in the soil. Within three years, his remains have put significant quantities of carbon and nutrients into the soil, resulting in lush plant growth. Meanwhile, the old man's tribe continue its journey, 
always following the herd from pasture to pasture until they stopped to settle on the best eating grasslands, nourished by their fallen elders. All are fed by ancestry and all are nourished by the countless accretions of the dead, the soil, the pastures, the livestock and the tribe. The wisdom here is that death doesn't rupture relations between the living and the dead, but rather affirms its necessity for life's continuance and sustenance. The dead aren't gone. They're present to the living through stories and customs, and most emphatically as nourishment if we can see and embrace the cycle of life and death. For those fortunate enough to have and to know and to hold their ancestors closely, the dead are never lost. They are destiny, and the living are always at home. But for most of us, there's no balm for our loss, no liniment for our fear of dying and death. Without a spiritual home or a cultural context, we seem to be tearing at the world in a frenzied pursuit of what we can't find. And all the while, we are turning the earth into a smoking ruin, a stark reminder of our inner landscape. We belong nowhere. We have no tribe, no elders, and no ancestral story to bring us home. No wonder the news of our death has become an existential horror to us. But it wasn't always so, and in some parts of the world, it's never been so.